This month on Security Management Highlights. In every case, there's a weird suspicion, feeling, something in the air. Mike Gibbs, Vice President of Publishing at ASIS International, tells us more about his recent trip to Israel, which resulted in this month's cover story on suicide bombing attacks. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a drone, and they're being used for a sneaky effort that may surprise you. They had an incident where a very alert correctional officer at a maximum security facility noticed a strange light. News and Trends editor Mark Torello explains, then... The bedrock of a culture of security lays in the effectiveness and efficiency of your security program. Retired FBI Special Agent Thomas Trier tells us more about building a culture of security in December's Managing Series. Plus... Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa stops by to talk about homegrown extremism and how these non-jihadist terrorist threats are being addressed. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Drones have made appearances in the news for some not-so-glamorous reasons, including in May of this year when a man flew his unmanned aerial system onto the White House lawn. Here to explain just one more reason behind the infamy of drones is our News & Trends editor, Mark Torello. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Now, I'm curious. This topic you've written about is so interesting, but I haven't seen a lot about it, you know, in the news. It's not like you turn on CNN and you see breaking news about drones making covert prison drops. Tell us how you came about this topic and what made you want to write about it. It was very interesting. As you know, we here at Security Management do a morning news brief. And our colleague, Anne Etheridge, in one of her morning news briefings, picked out a story that a drone had dropped some contraband at a prison in Ohio. And like you said, this really wasn't reported on much in the mainstream press. So I was originally doing a story on kind of more general prison security. And when Anne pointed this out to me, I did some research and found out, wow, this is really a pressing issue now for a lot of prisons, so it's worth writing about. And luckily, one of the prison systems that is experiencing this, it's the South Carolina Department of Corrections, their director, Brian Sterling, he was very helpful in terms of letting me interview him for this story. And, you know, he was explaining exactly what was going on down there in uh, South Carolina Corrections. Yeah, so what were some of the issues Sterling said they've been dealing with at the South Carolina Department of Corrections? And kind of what did he have to say? Like we said, it's it's a fairly new thing. And he, he took over the job, I believe it was 2014. And at the time, he thought drones were not really top of mind for him at all in terms of a security issue. So they had an incident where a very alert correctional officer at a maximum security facility in South Carolina noticed a strange light, actually a few lights, and it turned out to be a drone. And the drone dropped... Uh, marijuana and a cell phone charger into the prison. So the next morning, the prison officials made a thorough search and they actually found what Sterling described as kind of a duck blind, a little patch where people had been hanging out. There were Gatorade bottles, there was some food. So this was all part of this drone operation and they realized that, hey, this is a problem for us. Wow. So he's implying that those drones have had made drops before 
quite possibly, and they didn't know about it? Yes, and they actually, after that, they had another incident with another drone at another prison. So it's really become an issue for them that they've had to deal with. So tell us about some of the other smuggling schemes that have been profitable for prisoners in the past and how they have been combated. Because drones seem like a newer problem, but in the past they've had success putting a stop to some of these other methods. Yeah, exactly. You could kind of look at it as drones or the, the latest evolution of this problem. Going back years, there was always issues about for people trying to get contraband into prisons. And going back years, they would do things like try to mail it in, in letters. Um, they would try to smuggle it in on trucks, on supply trucks that were coming into the prison anyway. They would put it in mustard and other condiment jars for the prison's food supply. Sometimes they would even carve out the inside of a football or a baseball or even a fake rock, put contraband inside, and then throw it over the wall. So South Carolina prisons, like other prisons across the country, have always tried to keep contraband out. And they've been, I think, somewhat innovative, for an example, in trying to fight the problem of people throwing a football or a baseball or a fake rock over the wall. They've actually put beehives right near the wall of the prison with big signs saying, you know, danger, bee stings, keep out. And as Sterling said, that's been a deterrent. I mean, it's kind of a scary prospect of getting stung by a million bees if you're uh, around that area. So this kind of becomes like airport security where, you know, one threat is attempted and then they put in a security measure to combat that specific threat, like, you know, taking off your shoes after the shoe bomber. So how are prisons combating the newest threat of, of drones and how do you keep them out of a prison yard? I mean, do you put a roof on the fence? What are they doing? Yeah, it's a pretty sticky problem. And one of the big issues that prisons who are trying to fight this are facing is that the uh, Federal Communications Commission does not allow prison officials to simply scramble the signal or block the signal of a drone because, you know, the FCC is protecting the airwaves and signal blocking is technically not allowed. And so that would be a way to stop drones. But since they can't do that, they're trying to think of other creative ways. One is trying to put large nettings, kind of covering as many of the rooftop open areas as possible. So contraband is dropped, it would be caught in the net. But that obviously isn't fail safe. I mean, it's hard to kind of net the entire prison. That's only a partial solution at best. There's other possibilities that these officials are exploring. One is that although the FCC prohibits signal blocking, technically it doesn't prohibit the prisons themselves having their own drones that could almost act as like fighter pilot drones that could try to take down an existing drone. So now you have a situation where there's potentially using drones to fight other drones, trying to kind of use the technology against itself drone battles and yeah and on that subject you also have prison officials and really 
other officials too that their facilities can be affected by drones like say power stations you could have a kind of drone program to sabotage a power station so one other method is to actually try to talk to people who operate drones there are these things called drone clubs and you know where they get together and share ideas and basically kind of get the message across like hey drones are legal and you're entitled to have your fun but remember i mean there's some serious consequences if you are thinking of doing something like a prison drop or something involving a public facility that type of thing so trying to talk to the operators themselves get the message that's another part of the solution mark thanks so much for stopping by thanks holly the importance of building a culture of security may sound like a no-brainer, but there are specific steps that managers can take to help foster this environment of safety at their organizations. Thomas Trier, a retired FBI special agent, wrote a feature story this month on the subject. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, thank you. In your article, you write that organizations must start with an assessment in order to build a strong culture of security. So how can companies go about this assessment process in order to lay a firm foundation? And what is the blueprint phase that you write about? I say that you should do an assessment first because in order to have a good culture of security, you have to have a good foundation for your security program. Your security program has to have good policies, procedures. They have to be accomplishing the missions that your company wants you to accomplish. It doesn't do any good to beat people over the head about not wearing your security badge if that's the only element of the security program. Some of the general missions are like physical access control, asset protection, and any compliance elements. So you should take a look at that as part of your assessment. What is your true mission? What does your company want you to accomplish? And then engage your management to make sure that they have engagement in what you're trying to put together as your security program. And once you know exactly what your company is looking for from your security program, take a look at who is working for you, what people work for you in your security department, what their positions are, and are they doing the job that's expected of them. If they haven't been doing that in the past, as you're looking at your past and present operations, your future operations are going to have to define their mission and say, look, here's what your job is and here's what you need to do. So once you have a firm foundation laid as far as what you're supposed to be doing, and then you do your assessment on are we doing that or what do we need to put in place to do that, take a look at policies and procedures. Do you have security policies and procedures that are written towards the security mission for the company? And if not, make sure that they're written somewhere so that you are laying the foundation of your security program. That's pretty much the blueprint. Take a look at what you're supposed to be doing, take a look at who's doing it for you, and then making sure that all this stuff is written down and that it is explainable to the company. You say that professionalism and training both play a key role in building and maintaining a security culture. How do they both help in that process? Well, like I said earlier, if you have a, a clear foundation and a good security program with defined mission and good people working for you, the bedrock of a culture of security lays in the effectiveness and efficiency of your security program. If your security program is respected, people are going to listen to what you have to say. So, I mean, if you have true professionalism, then they'll listen to what you have to say, and when you conduct any training, any annual training, it won't be a matter of, oh, here we go with security training again. It'll be a matter of, well, what does security have for us this year? Because they'll respect your program and they'll see the professionalism that your people are putting forth. So that's a very important aspect. I mean, the goal is to develop a general population of employees, vendors, and visitors, anyone that comes to your company to keep them safe and to make sure that they know what the security rules are so that they can comply with those rules. 
you know, once you do have a program established and you do have a culture of security and your security program is respected and people listen to you, set up an annual training for your security awareness training for your employees, vendors, anyone that's coming to your company should have some training available to them on what's expected of them as far as the security program. I mean, most companies will have a safety program that's respected and that everyone is expected to adhere to. The same adherence for a safety program should come across to a security program. In order to get the word out, you're going to have some kind of training packages available across all aspects of your company, you know, from the CEO down to, you know, a visitor. They should know what's expected of them as far as the security program when they're on your premises. Commitment is another factor you say must be demonstrated in order to establish a culture of security. Why is commitment important, and can you give us some examples of how that might play out in the real world? Yeah, commitment is uh, an important factor of a culture of security. People have to be committed to it. It's not a matter of, well, today I'm go- I forgot my badge, so I'm going to walk around without my badge and walk in behind Johnny. I mean, they should know what the policies are, and when they are in violation of that policy, they should self-report to the security department saying, look, I made a mistake here, here's something that happened, and I need to report it. And this should go across the board from the CEO down. I mean, if the CEO forgets his badge and the policy is to go to the security desk and get a temporary badge, the CEO should do that. If there's a sign-in book, the CEO's name should be signed in that book, not his secretary or one of the interns. Commitment to a security program and a culture of security should include from the highest persons in the uh, organization down to the lowest persons in the organization. If the janitor forgets his badge, he's not sending an intern down to get a temporary badge. He's going down and doing it himself. If the CEO demonstrates that same level of commitment, everyone's going to notice and the culture of security is going to be enhanced by that commitment from the executives. Finally, you say that violations of security policy must be dealt with fairly and consistently. Can you elaborate? In order to build a culture of security, a complete culture of security, there has to be a measure of fair and consistent enforcement in any security violations. If you break a rule as a security manager and you do it and it's a mistake, own up, take your punishment, and make sure the company knows that you are adhering to the rules yourself. If an executive breaks these rules and egregiously does so, they need to be held to the same standard as a janitor, a visitor, or anybody in the uh, company that might not be at the same executive level as this person. Enforcement has to be fair and it has to be consistent for a true culture of security to take hold within your organization. Your C-level executives have to understand that. They have to have buy-in on that, and that goes as far as communication and training, but it also goes to engagement of these individuals. A culture of security or a culture of safety has to go throughout the whole entire operation, and it has to be practiced by the executives themselves. If they practice it, people are going to follow It's all part of leadership, and the culture of security is going to be demonstrated by the engagement of the leadership in your company. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tom. Sure, no problem. I appreciate the time, and good luck. Now, on to a more somber topic. The world is bereaved as a wave of terror attacks is sweeping the globe, including the violent massacres in Paris last month that left 130 people dead. While these extremists claim loyalty to the Islamic State, other forms of terrorism are also alive and well, including in the United States, where homegrown terrorists are making their mark. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa tells us more about this type of extremism and what's being done to combat it. Hey, Lily. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Tell us more about this threat posed by 
non-jihadist terrorists in the United States. How are they becoming radicalized if not through, you know, a larger terrorist network like ISIS, for example? And how do they work to carry out attacks? Well, unfortunately, non-jihadist terrorists aren't really well organized and are typically self-radicalized, so it's hard to get a handle on patterns they may present before committing a terrorist act. In the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, or START, there are dozens of types of non-jihadist categories, ranging from pretty vague, such as anti-government protesters, to oddly specific, like the Veterans United for Non-Religious Memorials. So it's truly difficult to pick out patterns of these groups. What kind of attention has the homegrown terrorist threat gotten in Congress, for example, and what are lawmakers doing to curb it? Over the past couple of years, the threat of jihadist terrorism has gotten more attention in Congress than the homegrown threat. But after the Charleston massacre this summer, where a white supremacist killed nine people at a historically black church, the topic has been visited more frequently. The House Committee on Homeland Security held a hearing on the issue and want to amend the Homeland Security Act of 2002 to establish the Office for Countering Violent Extremism. And you write that a number of statistics have been kept on the threat, and you mentioned START earlier. Can you share some of those stats with us? Sure. There are a lot of databases and a lot of ways to track this information, but I looked at START's database and the International Security Program's database. According to START, more than 90% of all terrorist attacks in the United States since the 70s involved no casualties because so many are vandalism-based. In fact, there has been at least $227 million in property damage from terrorist attacks between 1970 and 2013. START has also identified more than 160 terrorist organizations, including the far left, the far right, anti-abortion activists, sovereign citizens, and more. According to the International Security Program, 314 individuals have been charged with jihadist terrorism since 2001, compared to 183 non-jihadists. However, in that same time period, jihadists killed 26 victims, while non-jihadist terrorists killed 48. And you mentioned a study that, you know, says it's difficult sometimes to determine whether or not a crime actually involves terrorism. Can you expand on that? Sure. So more traditional crime can be harder to categorize because it often depends on the motivation behind the crime. For example, the journal Violence and Gender reported 43 on-duty police officers were killed last year, but START only categorizes seven of those attacks as acts of terrorism. And finally, what did your sources say can be done to counter this type of extremism? It seems that it needs to be more of a community effort given uh, the difficulty of tracking these people. Like a lot of these types of issues, different experts have different opinions. As I mentioned earlier, the Homeland Security Committee is trying to establish an office to counter domestic terrorism by crafting a counter-messaging program. But experts from the Southern Poverty Law Center say they are skeptical of the ability of the government to craft credible, successful messages, especially since so many domestic extremist groups are anti-establishment. Instead, since the attacks are so idiosyncratic, local law enforcement should take a ground-up approach to protecting their communities from domestic extremism. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you, Holly. The recent attacks in Paris represented the worst violence on French soil since World War II. Among the weapons used by terrorists were suicide bombs. This month, our cover story touches on this form of extremist violence and how security personnel may be able to spot telltale signs of actors planning to ignite a suicide bomb. ASIS International Vice President of Publishing Mike Gibbs joins us to talk about a recent trip he took to Israel where he learned more about these indicators. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Thank you very much. So recently you traveled to Israel and our December cover story 
came out of that trip, but tell us more about your travels and how was the whole thing kind of conceived? Sure. As you know, Holly, Israel has been under an existential threat from all sides for 67 years. So who better to train security professionals on homeland security than experts from that nation? ASI sponsors a twice a year program on homeland security in conjunction with Tel Aviv University International and Acero Worldwide an Israeli consulting company. The program is seven days of classroom instruction, case studies, site visits, security analyses, and readings, which concludes with the award of a Homeland Security Certificate. I went to take the course and bring back lessons for security professionals who can't make it all the way to the Holy Land. So tell us what all you did while you were there. I know you were very busy the whole time and learned a lot of exciting and innovative stuff and also some some serious stuff. So tell us more about that. The program is based in Tel Aviv, which is a modern seaside city, but the class ventures all over the country. About half the program is classroom-based, covering topics like global terror, which is global and local terror, analysis of adversary modus operandi, the global threat from ISIS, and sensitive installation security. When I attended the program several months ago, we walked terror sites in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem analyzing why they succeeded or failed. We got a behind-the-scenes look at security at Ben-Gurion Airport, which is incredibly impressive and fascinating. I wanted to write about it, but airport officials asked me not too many secret levels of security. As a matter of fact, when I came back to the airport to leave the country, I counted 15 different levels of screening just to get on the plane. We also went on site to a cargo center, the Israeli parliament, and an air force base, and to kibbutzes and battle sites on the Golan Heights, the Rutenberg Power Plant, which is close to the Gaza Strip, and Sidrot, a city that is ground zero for rocket fire. The town is filled with spent missile cartridges. So they're just all over the ground? They are in racks next to the city hall. The security chief of the city will point them out and say, this one's from Iran, this one's from Russia, this one's from Syria. They can tell who made it by the language and the structure and the manufacture of the casings. Wow, that's really stark. And tell us, what was the most interesting thing you learned of of all of these interesting site visits? And the professors there are obviously very knowledgeable. Yeah, they were extremely knowledgeable. Probably the most interesting thing I learned are the many potential vectors of attack that Israel has to thwart, not only from outside its borders, but from the West Bank and Gaza as well. Of course, suicide bombs and rockets, and especially today, knife and car attacks, but also tunnels and frogmen in the Mediterranean, boat bombs, drones, car bombs, car attacks, motorcycle bombs, animal bombs, chemical or biological releases, the list goes on. And they're not theoretical. They've all been tried, most of them many times. But I also learned that by far the most important aspect of homeland security is good intelligence. It is very difficult to penetrate the border of Israel without Israeli intelligence knowing. And once they know, that's 90% of the battle because they can track you. The way your story laid out is really neat. You do illustrations of attacks and kind of small case studies. So how did you decide to write it like that? Were these stories you were being told along the way? Was that extra interviewing or research that you did? One of the professors predominantly showed us the attack sites. And at every site, he said something like, he gave a telltale phrase. It was something like something wasn't right, or the feeling was in the air, or something weird was happening. And as he said those things, I thought, you know, this is the story right here. In every case, there's a weird suspicion, feeling, something in the air, you know, a concern. And the story sort of developed as I was touring those sites and listening to the words of this professor. Yeah, I love the way that it's laid out because it shows that 
there was always something, as you said, in the air, there was something they could detect. And I think as security professionals, it's important to remember that vigilance is the, the first step in prevention. Absolutely. And you see the difference between people who are well-trained and prepared and people who maybe didn't take it as seriously or whose attention was not focused on the right things. Holly, I came to the class figuring that I'd write a couple of case studies, maybe about the power plant in the airport. But I was made privy to the information about sensitive installations with the provision that I not include material that could compromise them. And there just wasn't a story without that information. But how the instructors discussed suicide terrorism was fascinating. We spent a lot of time visiting sites and dissecting attacks. Should the guard at the door have reacted differently? Did anyone miss anything obvious? There was so much of these incidents that the topic made sense to write about. I just worried how relevant the information was to our readers. The instructors were insistent that suicide bombers were bound to move beyond the typical centers of Israel, Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan and spread their terror to Europe. And you see that they were right, given the horrible attacks in Paris in November and the state of high alert in Brussels. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us and telling us more about your trip. It's been a pleasure, Holly. That does it for this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Be on the lookout for bonus material throughout the month, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can also always listen at securitymanagement.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell. Bye-bye.